0: So I want to start today by sharing with you guys this uh, this quote that I read. Um, It's from a man named Viktor Frankl, who I'm sure some of you are familiar with, but he was an Austrian neurologist and a psychiatrist and a Holocaust survivor, and he wrote this book. He wrote many books, but uh, one of his more famous books was this uh, book called Man's Search for Meaning. And uh, this comes from that book, and it says, ultimately, oh, uh, no, that's not the one. <laughs> that's all right, Isaac. I tricked Isaac. Um, no, this one's not on there, so it's okay. <laughs> um, ultimately, man should not ask what the meaning of his life is, but, ma- but rather must recognize that it is he who is asked. Ultimately, man should not ask what the meaning of his life is, but rather must recognize that it is he who is asked. In a word, each man is questioned by life, and he can only answer to life by answering for his own life. It's a very interesting idea, right, that People shouldn't ask what the meaning of life is, but recognize that we are the ones who are being asked by life what our meaning is. So his, his point, and this is something that he talks about throughout his, his book and throughout uh, kind of his various teachings. But meaning isn't something so specific that we discover it and then pursue it. As if it's bound up in in something so specific. Like for me, if I were to think, oh, my meaning comes from being a pastor, for example. If that's what I were to think, then I would think when I'm pastoring, I'm fulfilling that meaning. But when I'm not, then I'm not. Then perhaps in that moment, in those moments, the meaning of my life is escaping me. There is no meaning. Now, what, what Viktor Frankl argues is that that is kind of foolish, that meaning isn't something that we determine and then we kind of go for, but it's something that we are presented with every day. It's something that finds us. It's something that's before us and we decide whether or not we are going to, you know, what we're going to do with it. It's something that we are being asked on a daily basis. Now, as Christians, where does meaning or purpose or calling come from? How should we consider it? And I think it can be really summarized in this phrase that we're going to look at today, which is, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation salvation. The meaning of our lives as Christians is bound up in this phrase. Now, we have to unpack that and kind of discover what it means. And so just to kind of give you something to follow, we will look at three things, three parts, um, and just By these words, recognize, exercise, and realize. So we were to recognize something and exercise something and realize something. And that's what we'll be looking at today. And so if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. And we've been in a series in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 and 13. And this is God's word. And it says this. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Therefore, my beloved, as you have obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, now, if you look at the text, you see that it starts again with this word, therefore. Right? And we talked about this last week, but whenever you see a therefore you can ask this very corny question. But what is the therefore, therefore? So what is it referring to or what is it pointing to? And to get that, we actually have to look at the previous passage again. So let's look back again. Let's go all the way back to verse 3. And if we look at verse 3, This whole section really is what it references. Now, grammatically, you can see in verse 12, that therefore refers back to the previous section, which starts in verse 9. But verse 9 also starts with a therefore. So you got to go back again to the previous section from verse 5. But that is also in reference to verse 3. So this whole section is what's being looked at here. So we'll read it one time. Just to remind you, if you've been with us, we'll kind of quickly remind you what this whole section was about. But starting in verse 3, it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So just looking at this, there are a couple of um, themes that come out, right? And really it can be summarized by this idea of, Humble, obedient servanthood, right? All the way from verse 3 through verse 8, you see that it's talking about this idea of humble, obedient servanthood. Step into that, right? Paul says early in verse 3 and 4, step into that. Like, don't just look out for yourself. Don't have this selfish ambition, but be humble. Look to the interests of others. Live your life, in fact, for the sake of other people, just like Jesus did. Right? Have this mind, if you remember, this mind is this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus, and last week we looked at this in the incarnation, he took on flesh. He became human. God became human, took the form of a servant. He was born like a man, really in a, in a humiliating fashion, all the way in an obedient life and an obedient death. <laughs> even death on a cross. And because of all that, verse 9, it says, therefore, in light of all that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So God the Father exalts God the Son because of his humble, obedient servanthood. Because he lived that way. Because he died that way. Verse 10, so that At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in light of all of that, in light of all of that, there's another therefore that begins our passage, right? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, But much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So the obedience that Paul is encouraging here is to that same humble, obedient, other-centered servanthood that goes all the way back to verse 3 through verse 8. He's saying this, working this out. So when he says, work out your own salvation... In reference to obedience, now he's, remember he points back, he says, look at the obedience of Jesus. And now you, like Jesus, should obey in that way. You should obey like Jesus obeyed. You should live as a humble, obedient servant. Work out your salvation. Now we'll look a little bit deeper into what that means exactly, what Paul is talking about there. But for now, the point here, the first thing that I want to point out from this passage is that we should recognize the pursuit of obedience as a calling. Recognize the pursuit of obedience and obedience can be further defined as living as a humble, obedient, you know, servant, obedient before God, not just obedient to everybody, but humble And obedient before God and exemplifying this servanthood, recognize that as a calling. It's a calling. Why does obedience matter? Why does it matter that we recognize the significance of obedience? Okay, now let's look at a few other passages. This is from 2 Thessalonians eight. Uh, so all three passages, in fact, are there on the screen for you. 2 Th- Thessalonians 1.8, Inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So who is the vengeance of God coming upon? It's those who do not obey the gospel. See the significance of obedience there. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So do you see, it says whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So there's that belief, but then it says whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. So belief and obedience are inextricably linked. They are linked together in a way that they cannot be separated. Verse 5, through whom we have recognized, I'm sorry, Romans 1.5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. And this is Paul talking about his own call as an apostle. And he says, you know, the purpose to is to bring about the obedience of faith now this is important because anyone any pastor or anyone who would preach the word including myself that would separate obedience from faith is doing you a disservice those things cannot be separated they are clearly in Scripture. I only picked out three passages. If you read the Bible with that lens, you're going to see it everywhere. That really to love God is to obey God. To exercise faith in God is to obey God. Recognize humble, obedient servanthood as a calling. Because that's what Paul says, right? That's the purpose of my apostleship, to bring about this obedience. So today, in our culture, um, self-actualization is a big idea. It's an extremely important idea, particularly to uh, the current kind of generation, both to millennials and to Gen Z Self-actualization, what it means is it's the realization or fulfillment of one's talents and potentialities. Especially considered as a drive or need present in everyone. So it's the idea that we have this desire within ourselves to fulfill our potential. Right? And this is a huge driving force. In the past, this hasn't necessarily been so presented as such a uh, kind of an important idea as a as a goal in and of itself right like this is not something necessarily in past generations that was to be pursued like you have to fulfill your potential like you have to find the thing that makes you most you and that and many I think in many ways today that's found more in kind of a, a job or a vocation it's like yeah that's what you have to really go after It's less about what provides value to society. It's less about what is going to serve the needs of other people. It's more about me. Who am I? And what is going to make me happy? If I do this thing, it's going to make me happy, and that's the reason that I should do this thing. It's often what drives the, you know, even in church with many people, I think it drives kind of this idea of calling. Well, I have to find my calling. You know what is calling? It's the thing that I'm the best at, and is going to make me happy. So I'm going to go back to Viktor Frankl. So this quote, we do have this one, Isaac. This is this was the one. He said this. He said, "By declaring that man is responsible and must must actualize the potential meaning of his life, I wish to stress that the true meaning of life is to be discovered in the world, rather than within man." or his own psyche, as though it were a closed system. I've termed this constitutive characteristic the self-transcendence of human existence. I know it's kind of wordy, but stick with it, right? It denotes the fact that being human always points and is directed to something or someone other than oneself, be it a meaning to fulfill or another human being to encounter. The more one forgets himself, By giving himself to a cause to serve or another person to love, the more human he is and the more he actualizes himself. What is called self-actualization is not an attainable aim at all for the simple reason that the more one would strive for it, the more he would miss it. In other words, self-actualization is possible only as a side effect of self-transcendence. In other words... Self-actualization is a byproduct of living out meaning, not the purpose of it, right? If you chase after fulfilling your potential, you will never find fulfillment, nor will you ever meet your potential because that's not how it works. You can only actually discover your potential When you're going after something, that's not you, right? If you're chasing after something thinking, well, I have to do this so that I can be the best me, then you'll never be the best you. If, however, you discover meaning in a cause or a life beyond your own, then you will become fully self-actualized as a byproduct of living out that meaning, And this runs really counter to the culture right now. Because life is all about pursuing your potentials. Finding them, discovering them, putting them on display, allowing them to be seen by others so that you can be praised, so that you can be lifted up, so that people can tell you how amazing you are because you have this thing, this ability that people didn't know you had. But your full potentials in truth can only be seen and understood even by you when you live for something that's outside of you. Your daily purpose is wrapped up in humble, obedient servanthood in the context of the people who are in your life every day. See, isn't that how Jesus lived? Did Jesus... Come to this earth, and while he lived this life, he's constantly telling people how great he was. You know, he's saying, hey guys, come come here, come here. Look what I can do, right? It was water, now it's wine. Wow, amazing, right? Like, did he do that? Did he say... Like, we only got five loaves and two fish. And he says, that's nothing for Jesus, right? Like, like you know, referring to himself in the third person also and saying, the Jesus is here. Let me do this. Let me show you how powerful I am. Like, was that Jesus' life? Is that the way he lived his life? And when he wasn't doing that stuff, he's thinking, man, I'm really not fulfilling my potential. Or did Jesus... live his life for the sake of other people? Was he constantly confronted with challenges before him? And anyone that would come to him, right? Every outcast, every mute, lame, deaf, blind man, woman, child, soldier, foreigner, religious leader, politician, tax collector, prostitute, sinner, anyone who would come to him in faith, He would help. He would humbly serve. In fact, the ultimate expression of the potential of God was not in, for example, like creation, although that is amazing. It points to the wisdom and the power and the glory of God. But the ultimate potential of God, the ultimate actualization of God, right the the full expression of God's love, and his power and his grace and his glory is in fact not in that kind of expression. It is in the expression of Jesus. His incarnation, his taking on flesh, his humbling himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It is not in the big explosion of power. It is in the fact that all-powerful God could humble himself to that level to express that kind of love for you and for me. Who are we to say that that's not a calling worthy enough for us to pursue? Recognize the pursuit of Obedience, the pursuit of Christ likeness, the pursuit of humble, obedient servanthood, that that is a calling. In fact, if you are a Christian, that is your calling. That is your primary calling. That's not to say that other things are not birthed out of that and other th- more specific things don't come out of that. But that, that, to work out your salvation in that way, that is your calling. Now let's look at just let's look at the phrase well in fact I'll just give you the second point here the second point is exercise exercise continuous sustained effort in the pursuit of this calling in the pursuit of this obedience in the pursuit of this Christ likeness Now, if we look a little bit more specifically at that phrase, uh, work out your own salvation, there's a couple things we have to ask. What is meant by salvation and what is meant by working out? Okay, so let's look at salvation first. Now, a few things, right? We're going to look at a bunch of passages here, but please uh, try to stick with me. So, a few things we have to understand. One, salvation in the Bible, particularly Paul's understanding of salvation, is past, present, and future. Okay, so let's look at a few passages here that just point that out. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. So, you have been saved, that's past tense. That's clear, right? We can all understand that this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. So it's clear salvation comes from God, and it's something that is past. Now, if you look at the next passage, 1 Corinthians 1 18, it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, Paul is speaking to, he's writing to Christians, but he's saying that, you are being saved. So there's a way in which we have been saved, and there's a way in which we are being saved. And then if you look at Romans thirteen eleven, it says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So that also points to a future salvation. So there's a way in which we have been saved, there's a way in which we are being saved, and there's a way in which we will be saved at the end. Now, which salvation, what kind of salvation is Paul referring to here when he talks about salvation? Now, for that, let's, let's look at a couple other passages. This is Philippians 3. So this is in the same book, right? This is in the same letter, just a little bit later. Paul says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, that prize which he is referencing there, that is salvation, He's saying something similar to what he's saying in this passage, right? I press on, essentially, I work out toward the goal of this salvation of God in Christ Jesus. Again, Galatians 6, 8-9, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap Eternal life. You reap what you sow. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. We will reap what? We will reap eternal life if we do not give up. So then, which salvation is Paul referring to? Now, here's the thing. Paul's referring to all of it. Why? Because all of the salvation presented in Scripture works together. It all works together. There is no, and, you know, and the Bible talks about this. We could look at Romans 8. We're not going to look at that. But if you're predestined, then you're called. If you're called, then you're justified. You're justified. You're glorified. There is this unbroken chain of salvation. If you have been saved, then you are being saved and you will be saved. Salvation, all of that salvation works together. Again, I'm going to say this. Anyone who tries to divorce these salvations and says, well, you might have been saved in the past. I don't know if you're being saved right now. I don't know if you're going to be saved. Like anybody who makes it into these separate things because one happens by faith and then one happens by works and then one happens by this or that. Not doing you a service, that's a disservice. This all works together, this salvation. So he's talking about real salvation here. Now one more question. What does the word work out mean? What does that term mean in the Greek? Kater or kater depending on the kind of the form here. What does that mean? Okay, so we're going to look at a few other passages. Stick with me here because we'll, we'll get to the point here in a second. So uh, this is from Romans 4. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So that word brings is actually the same word that's used in this passage and translated as work out. Okay, now let's look at Romans 5. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. So that word, again, is the same word used here for work out. And then 2 Corinthians 7.10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So this word, work out, ordinarily means to produce or to bring about or to effect, right? That, that's, that's what this word work out really is. That's what it refers to. That's what it means. This is how one commentator put it, and that's why I use the wording I did, Peter O'Brien. He says, he kind of translates it this way, it is continuous sustained effort, And he gets that because it's the present tense. It's the idea of this continuous thing that's happening. So what does it mean to work out your salvation? That's real salvation, and we are called to work it out. We are called to continuous, sustained effort in the pursuit of this humble, obedient servanthood for our salvation. Any relationship you've ever been a part of involves continuous sustained effort, right? I mean, it doesn't really matter who it is. Certainly with our parents, we understand that. Maybe it's your, you know, it it could be like a spouse or kids. You know, some of you guys got married recently, right? And, um, you know, there's this idea that you have in your head of what marriage is going to be like, even though people tell you it's not going to be like that. You know, like you imagine that it's going to all be, it's going to all just kind of be nice and and easy. And, you know, to be clear, um, that's that's fine that you think that, you know, this is, you you know, when you get married, that's the person that you love most in the world, right? So you think, well, it should be easy. This This should just kind of be produced. It should just happen. But anyone who's, been married for any length of time knows that that's not the way that it works it requires continuous sustained effort if you have a kid and you think well i'm gonna love this kid it's gonna be so easy because this is my kid that came out of my you know dna and they're just they're a part of me and they're so cute like i'm just gonna love them it's gonna be easy but of course every everybody every child is, is born a sinner and so that's going to play a role in that relationship. You're a sinner. That's going to play a role in that relationship. And so it's going to require this continuous, sustained effort. Any hobby you've ever had requires continuous, sustained effort. Why would we think that the pursuit of obedience, of humble, obedient servanthood in Christ would not require continuous, sustained effort in fact the passage says with fear and trembling do you know where that comes from it comes from exodus 15 16 you don't have to turn there i'll just read it real quick it says terror and dread fell upon them because of the greatness of your arm this is part of moses's like song he's saying you know who's like you O god after the 10 plagues after they parted the red sea and he says terror and dread fell upon them Yeah, all the nations obviously were scared of God after what happened, after God unleashed these plagues, unleashed his power. And he's saying that is the way that you should work out your own salvation with this kind of obviously not fear necessarily, but a fearful reverence before an awesome God. I'm going to just say this quickly before we move on. Take responsibility for your own discipleship. Like, do everything that you can to live out humble, obedient servanthood before God because of the gospel. Don't, you know, these days, everyone is a big talker. You know, everyone's on social media talking about what people should do and shouldn't do, what politicians should do and shouldn't do, what churches should do and shouldn't do. But the truth is, what really matters is what you do with your life. It's not about what everyone's doing. It's not about everything that's going on out there. You can say whatever you want. But when the opportunities are presented before you, when you have the opportunity to humbly serve and love your wife or your husband or your kid or your mom or your dad or your sibling or your friend or your neighbor or your coworker When you have the, the chance to humbly, obediently before God, serve refugees, the homeless, people who are around you. When those opportunities come to you, into your lap. Do you take advantage of those or do you sit back and lament oh, if, only, if only the economy were better, if only politicians were doing something, if only the church at large were doing, if only the programs were different, if only this was different, if only that were different, then maybe I'd have a better relationship with God. Then maybe I would actually be able to live out my discipleship. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, with the kind of reverence, with the kind of reverent fear that God deserves. Persevere in pursuit of Christ-like humility and servanthood in light of the glory of God. Now finally... Here's point number three. Realize, realize that this awesome, glorious God is at work in you. Now the question is, how can we reconcile this idea of working out your own salvation with the notion of the fact that salvation is by grace through faith? Because of course, It is by grace through faith. You don't earn your salvation. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation. And the answer is right there. If we look at the passage again, let's look at Philippians. Let's actually back up a little bit. Let's go to verse 9, and then we'll go through 9 to 13. It says, therefore, once again, we'll go to the previous therefore. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, really quickly, look at that, right? Verse 9 says, God has highly exalted him. Who is the God? God is God the Father, right? Who's the Him? Him is Jesus, God the Son. So God the Father has highly exalted God the Son because of His humble, obedient servanthood. And then if you jump down to verse 11, it says, to the glory of God the Father. So God the Father exalted God the Son to the glory of God the Father. God is for God. God is for the glory of God. This is one of God's, this is really God's primary pursuit. He is for his own glory, which is good news for us because if you go down to verse 13, it says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, meaning God is for God and God is in you, so God is for you. If God is for God and God is in you, then God is for you. So the passage presents these motivations to work out your own salvation. One is the previous one, that Jesus was glorified, right? His humble, obedient servanthood led to his glory because ultimately that is what is glorious. It's not like Jesus at the end you know, when he's glorified, he doesn't say, Ha, I tricked you guys, right? Like I just pretended to be a humble servant for all those years, and now I've received glory, and now I'm gonna oppress all of you. You know, and it's like, that's not the point, right? The point is that the glory of God is revealed in that humble, obedient servanthood. That is glorious, and therefore, when we're all freed. From our sinful veils, when we can understand clearly, we will see the glory of Jesus, of course, exalted by God the Father. And everyone will t- confess that he's Lord, either in a, in a joyful way, like, like Jesus, you are Lord, or in a bitter way, Jesus, they're, they're going to recognize. Some people will recognize the glory of God in the bitterness of their own condemnation. Nevertheless, they will recognize the glory of God. Now, that's supposed to be a motivation. Hey, that's why you should live humble, obedient servanthood, like thinking of that as a calling, pursuing that with a continuous sustained effort, actually living for that. Thinking about that glory, that should be motivation. But if you say, but it's still hard, it's still hard for me which is completely understandable, particularly in light of everything that's going on now. Literally this week... I mean, you know, Micah was, (laughs) it was dark at four. I mean, I know for a lot of you guys it was too, right? Because the fires are going on. It was seriously like apocalyptic weather. That's how it felt. And there's just a certain sense of, like, when so many things are going on, there are fires in some places, there are floods in some places of the world. There are, you know, hurricanes in some places of the world. It's super hot, it's super cold. Like, there are all these things happening on top of the virus, on top of injustice, on top of... People being worried about jobs or, you know, just your, your finances, right? Like these, all these things are happening. And it is completely understandable if you say I'm tired, I'm weak, I'm broken, I'm just not happy-go-lucky all the time. Like that's just not reality. And, and that's why Paul provides this where he says, for it is God who works in you. Because you got to realize that. Like when he says, have exercised this continuous, sustained effort, he's not saying, do that by yourself. He's saying, realize, as you do that, realize that this awesome God, this God who is to be feared, this God who, is to, who we are to stand in awe of, who is all-powerful, and who has demonstrated this glorious power in the sacrifice of his son, realize that he's the one working in you. So how can we understand this? Now, I have a question, okay? When I'm driving my car, when I drive my car to church, what makes my car move? Okay? Now, you could argue that what makes my car move is my foot, Right Because my foot is the the thing that steps on the pedal, you know steps on the gas. If I don't step on the gas, the car doesn't move. So you could make the argument that what makes my car move forward is my foot. now, however, you could also make the argument that what makes my car move is the engine because the car is designed in such a way that the end when I step on the pedal that powers. You know, that makes something happen in the car so that the engine, you know, causes the car, causes the tires to spin, causes the car to move forward. Because in truth, all I'm really doing is stepping on a pedal, right? The magic of the car happens in the engine and the tires, not in my foot, because when I step on other things, they don't necessarily move. And the reason I bring this up It's because I want us to realize, realize the power of God, right? Because, church, there is no silver bullet when it comes to growth in Christ, growth in holiness, to discipleship, to the pursuit of this, you know, this humble, obedient servanthood. Like, we, we have used tons of names for things. Evangelism Explosion, Four Spiritual Laws, The Bridge, Small Groups, Life Groups, Cell Groups, Discipleship Groups, Intensive Bible Study, Inductive Bible Study, Discovery Bible Study, Ruth, Rooted, Alpha Classes, Awaken and Activate, Discipleship Wheel, Gospel Center and Disciple. We've called things all kinds of different things. And I'm not saying that uh, none of that is relevant or none of that matters. Context matters, you know, different forms are helpful for different people. But the fact that so many forms, that so many models exist, is a luxury, not a necessity. In other words... I think we, we the sheer volume of resources at our disposal cause us to lose sight of the true power of discipleship. The true power of discipleship is not in the model. If somebody comes out and says, oh, like this model of discipleship has changed my life, I would say you're mistaken. If there's real change in your heart, that's not what happened. God changed your life through this model of discipleship, meaning... All of these forms can work if they are powered by Christ. And none of them will work if not powered by Christ. So then the power is not in the model. The power is in God. The power is in Christ working in you. That's where the power comes from, meaning if your model is just, I wake up every morning and I read the Bible and I pray a prayer. And your faith, your trust is in Christ. If I trust that when I step on the pedal, the car moves, then the car is going to move. Because the car, as long as the car is working, as long as the engine is working, as long as everything is working the way it's supposed to work, then what does it matter what the paint job is? And trust that the Spirit of Christ is a ridiculously, you know, supercharged turbo engine. That's what we are given. That's what we are afforded. Any discipleship, no matter the model. Including just reading the Bible. That's like a, that's like a car with a zero to 60 in one second engine. So long as we trust that the power is in God. It's not magic. It does not happen without conscious motivation and participation. However, there's a power at work in you through this promise. If God is in you, he is working in you. Jesus is with you. The present experience of Christ is not and and here's the thing that experience of Christ working in us, that fellowship with Christ, that knowledge of God that closeness is not merely bound up in reading and praying right the closeness is bound up in following in the steps of Christ that humble obedient servanthood The working out of your salvation, when you do that, the continuous, sustained effort toward the humble, obedient servanthood, trusting that God is the one realizing that the power of almighty God is working in you. That's that's life. Very quickly, I'm going to close with these application points. One, ask God for strength. Because I know it is hard. It's crazy out there right now. But ask God for strength. And and this is the important part. Trust that he will answer. Trust that when you step on the pedal, the car is going to move. Ask God for strength. And trust that he will answer. Here's two. Ask people for help and trust that it will help. You know, it's all about humility, right? Humility causes us to say two things. One, I need help. Two, I want to help. Pride also causes us to say two things. One, I don't need help. And two, I don't want to help. The path of pride is I don't need help and I don't want to help. I got my own things to do. I got my own things to pursue. I have my own life. I'll figure it out. I don't need help. I don't need prayer. You know, it's just this. It's just that. I'll figure it out. Humility is the opposite. I both need help. And rather than living my life for my own agenda and my own pursuits, I'm going to live my life helping other people. So that's two, ask people for help and trust that it will help. And here's three, ask people to help and trust that it matters. Ask people to help and trust that it matters because it does. And it matters far more than you fulfilling your potentials. Like thinking that that is the purpose of your life. Asking to help and helping people simply. Taking advantage of the opportunities that you have to actually help people. Whether or not it is the exact thing that you think you want to do. Whether or not you think it's the thing that exalts you and makes you, you know, that fits into what you think your life is meant to be. When we step into the footsteps of Christ and we say, I'm going to live like a humble, obedient servant as Christ did. You know, you experience the closeness to Christ, you experience the closeness to others, and you experience your potentials being fulfilled. That's how God designed us to be. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much that you desire to free us from the fruitless pursuit of meaning only within ourselves to think about our greatest talents and abilities and how those things can be used and put on display, primarily, God, as the point of our lives. We know that that is a fruitless endeavor. We know, God, that there is not deep meaning to be found there. You free us God, to walk in the steps of your Son, Jesus Christ, who did not come to this earth to be served, who did not come to, the, to this earth to receive the glory of men, but to humble himself, but to become a servant, but to sacrifice in obedience even to the point of death even to the point of crucifixion even to the point of the most horrific death even to take on the sin of the world though he was without sin that was his joy that was a joy that was sent before him when that opportunity presented itself in the micro and the macro when every person who came before him humbly confessed that they needed him. He happily helped, served, loved. That was meaning on display. That's purpose on display. And only fully in the end will we understand that that was ultimate glory on display. We pray, God, would you unleash us to pursue that kind of meaning every day in our lives, to live as humble, obedient servants to the people around us. We ask for your strength. We ask for your help. And we trust, God, that you will answer. We love you, and in Jesus' name we pray.